Hello, and welcome to Smooth Scaling, the podcast from Insight Partners that helps revenue leaders scale their software companies at every stage of growth. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan, and today is part two of my discussion with Michaela Downs, head of global sales operations at Benchling, a biotech R&D platform that empowers customers to get their breakthrough products to milestones and market faster. Check out part one for her insights on how to create renewal processes that support 10x growth and 150% net retention rate. And now we continue our chat. Michaela, I understand that you've also had some very interesting experiences standing up a deal desk as part of an acquisition. Can you share a little bit of your story doing that? I was at a company called Polybor in a sales operations role. We were eventually acquired by Yahoo and merged with another sales team, but we weren't part of the big parent company mothership sales team. And we were reflecting on things we had to do to innovate in that situation where we were small sales team, big company, had to use their tools. And in that time, we were technically what I would call like an ad tech business, we were working in advertising, so very different than SaaS. And something that I think people take for granted when they're in operations in different business models is that there are things I think that different industries do better or worse than others, and you can borrow from each other. So in ad tech, there really wasn't this notion of having a deal desk. Chronologically, how this happened is we came into the company, we merged with the sales team, but we were still working with reps we'd known for a long time. And between both of them, It was really interesting to see how they just struggled with the closing process. It wasn't so much the selling and working with customers. Like it was really just what do they do when a customer is ready to buy and how do they get that over the line so it's booked and they can get paid. It was just really, really messy. Things from not knowing how to manage the system, not understanding how it was tracked, getting feedback later from finance. Hey, you did this wrong or hey, we can't pay this out. We're we're clawing this back. It was a mess in every way you can imagine. And so at the time, I didn't really, I wasn't really thinking deal desk, but it was just, wow, this is a big problem for us to fix or because AEs are getting frustrated. They're either giving up or they're finding loopholes and there's bad behaviors. So we got to get give everybody a good process to follow. Around that time, I think I was at a, I think it was actually a Modern Sales Pros networking event. And I was speaking to this woman who was working, I think at SurveyMonkey. And she was talking about how her team just kicked off deal desk. And I was like, can you tell me a little bit more about what they're doing? And when she described DealDesk to me, I was like, oh my God, this is what my team, this is what this team needs. They need somebody to help shepherd this closing process to make sure the dots are connected. They're not having to talk to all the lawyers. They don't have to talk to RevRec. We have some consolidated, organized process and some leadership around how do you close business. So we ended up implementing that with this sales team at Yahoo. And it was, I would say, a huge driver and just not only not only helping us close revenue, but like keep our AEs sane. Many companies will have a final penultimate, I should say, stage in Salesforce that's read something to the effect of ready for provisioning, which cues the deal desk right. to go and clean things up. Do you have a stage like that in your Salesforce instance? We actually do. Yeah, we do have that at Benchling. We didn't have it at Yahoo because we weren't able, we had to work within their sales process, but we had to build kind of like ad hoc processes outside it to make sure it was checked. And with that, is it your experience that every deal needs to go through that or are there ways to prevent having to to look at every single deal 
you know, work on those dotting the I's and crossing the T's provisioning and so forth? I've seen it both ways. Ideally, it's, you know, it's your top 20%, like your needle movers, right, that you're checking to make sure and ideally 80% of your business is moving. An area where I've seen that really streamline quickly is moving terms online because it's usually like do you have the right paperwork in place is like the big the big problem and so we did this at polyvore actually before yahoo we moved our terms on online so that it was the default going out with our contracts which all ran through salesforce and it was like immediate how many hours we had to stop logging with our outside counsel. Looking back at your background, you've had the good fortune of working for companies that got acquired multiple times, one by Salesforce, another one by Yahoo. What advice do you have for people who work in smaller companies that get acquired by larger ones? Yeah, and you know, it's funny. I feel like because so few people talk about the aspiration of being acquired, it's all IPO, when do we go public, right? But the acquisitions, there is really good stuff to learn there, especially the Yahoo one, because I stayed through uh, two years through, and we also got merged with another team. You learn what it's like to have to operate as a public company when you probably weren't before. So there, there's all kinds of new, you, you see what the endpoint is a little bit clearer. But also, you still have to be scrappy. I think in some ways we had to be scrappier at Yahoo than we were at Polyboard because we had a different set of constraints put on us. So like I said, we were in their Salesforce, we were in their Tableau instance, not everything worked the way we wanted to. So there was a lot of bootstrapping on the outside, maybe not ideal, but tools built in Excel if we needed to augment data, if we needed to build we actually built like a contracting tool in a sheet so people could understand the right terms they need to use. But it's all part of the problem solving. And I think it's fun, but it definitely presents different challenges that I don't think you go through if you're just through a startup alone, let alone one that goes to its IPO stage without any intervention. I guess I'm also curious in that integration, merger, post-merger integration process, some of the human factors, right? I would assume that there's a period of time where you're you're wondering if you have a job post-merger, right? Yeah. Any advice for getting through that period and staying sane? I mean, if you're in a leadership position, just try to be as transparent and human as you can. I think that was something we really benefited from at Polyvore. You know, everybody really trusted and under- and believed that our leadership team had everyone's best interests and heart. And at the end of the day, that's going to matter more than any new fancy benefits or retention packages, that kind of thing to keep people feeling at ease. Yeah, as you say that, I was actually immediately thinking about a company that I was in a lot. I was in the larger company and we acquired a smaller company. And the CEO of that company, his name was Jamie Lewis, did what you said, right? Like he was incredibly transparent. He was incredibly human on, on both sides. And one of the most impressed things that impressed me the most was, you know, this was a, a very small company, sub $100 million in, in ARR being acquired by a multi-billion dollar company. And he had the guts to stand up to the CEO of that multi-billion dollar company and and fight for what was right for both the customers and his people. And it wasn't that the billion dollar company had any evil motives. It's simply that there are these existing processes and, and you do try to force fit the acquisitions into those existing processes. But he did figure out there were these one or two things that that really mattered that required some adjustments to the to the operating rhythm of the of the mega company. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I think something that Yahoo did right was they let us operate 
somewhat on our own. Like we didn't have to share ops resources. We didn't have to share enablement and product marketing. We, we almost retained our own vertical. And they were like, let's let this run for a year or two to get people integrated. And then it was really our job. Our sales reps really didn't have to interface with centralized compensation, finance, or legal teams. That all came through us. And I think it was much easier to get absorbed when you had a central group of people that could manage those communications and solve the problems versus troubleshooting things after. It's a good thing when they give you some time to to integrate and, and run on your own to figure things out. The This one company I was mentioning, we had a tendency to want to integrate as fast as humanly possible. And, and you can do damage in the process of, of doing that. So it's slow down to speed up. Well, let's let's move into maybe a little lightning round here of a of a handful of questions. So, we spoke a little bit before about some of the advice for scale up CEOs who are building out a RevOps function for the first time. You know, in particular, we talked about the skill set of that first hire. What other advice do you have for a scale up CEO building that revenue operations function? I think my biggest advice is the sooner you can consolidate the customer journey into a core leadership team, the better. And by that, I mean, a lot of companies, I think, start up and they have sales leaders and they have CS leaders and they have marketing leaders and they all report to the CEO. And I do think the sooner you can merge them as one functioning team, the easier transition you're going to have, especially when it comes to developing goals, you know, what are the big rocks that the company needs to tackle? Like, it's so critical that the leaders of those functions are on the same page. And I don't think it's for lack of wanting to get along, but I think unless you're on one team, it can be really challenging. So you're an advocate of the of the true CRO who has pre-sale, post-sale and marketing. Absolutely. And then yeah. I would assume that trickles over into the revenue operations function, right? There that the revenue operations function should also consolidate ops across those three as opposed to having individual individual folks underneath, you know, the CMO, CCO and CR and head of sales. That's right. I'm a huge advocate of that. We actually have made that pivot at Benchling. We have a president of field, which is it's similar to that role you just described, where all the, we're all one team, right? So when we think about our targets for the year, we're thinking about them together. When we're thinking about projects, how do you think about them you know, cross-functionally? And so I think we have the right people in place, and we're starting to think more like that. But if I were to go back four or five years, any advice I would give to a, a new CEO would be do it sooner than later. It'll just be easier for you to scale. You mentioned earlier that right AEs are are fixated on their quota. You've been working in SaaS long enough to know that it is a normal thing for quotas to increase from year to year. What <laughs> advice do you have for heads of RevOps and CROs when they are going to roll out a quota increase to make sure that they don't have a revolt on their hands with their reps? Yeah, you know that's so interesting because. I've gotten input on this from people coming from really big companies where the approach is, hey, the company needs to grow by X and we set a straight line across the board. Everybody needs to go up 20%. So your quote is going up 20%. And the pros of that are that you don't get a lot of questions. There's not a lot of bias, but the cons are you're going to have people who are not, who are more or less set up for success than others and probably a lot of room to mitigate. The other end of that is when you get super custom, right? And there's a million different data points going into everyone's quota and you have to make assumptions, right? Like not everything is gonna be based on a known variable, but I guess my, my answer is you try to find the middle ground so that people understand this is the top line growth expectation for the company. 
this is our bottoms up view of where your territory is and where it needs to go. And being transparent with that data enough to give people not so much to explain the quota, but to help them see the path. Like this is why this is achievable for you. I'm a big fan of the book Switch by Chip and Dan Heath, who use a particular metaphor for talking about change management that uh, you have to imagine there's a rider on an elephant going down a path and the rider is the rational part of change. The elephant is the emotional part of change. And the path is, of course, the things that you need to do to make that change possible. So the rider is the is the rational, yeah. the elephant is the emotional, and the path is where the elephant is walking, that that journey is is shaping the path. So how do you make things how do you make things easy for them? I definitely when you talked about large companies, you just say the company needed to achieve a twenty percent increase, so we need to increase things by twenty percent for every rep. That's such a company centric answer, right? As you pointed out. And what the rep really wants to know is, okay, how, do, how are you going to make hitting that quota more achievable to me? I, I want to know, are you in, increasing our, our marketing budget? Are you spending on enablement? Are you going to increase my XDR coverage, right? So what did you do for me that's going to justify that additional quota that you're putting out there? That's right. No, and I really like that example of the rider and the elephant because it it's it's a hard time of year and you're, and you're balancing just a lot of expectations, whether if you're public, it's the markets, if you're private, it's your board, you have your finance team, you have everyone's paycheck, right, is riding on how much revenue are we going to bring in and how are we going to cover our quota capacity. So there are those realities, right, balanced with how do you make sure the individual people are set up for success. So again, I think that's another place where just the human leadership is so critical. Well, Michaela, such a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom across all a whole range of topics in sales operations. Thank you so much. This was fun. Thank you for listening to the Smooth Scaling Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, or tell a friend. For more information about the topics we discussed today, check out the Insight Partners blog at insightpartners.com slash blog. See you next time.